Support for this podcast and the following message come from Wise, the app that makes managing your money in different currencies easy. With Wise, you can send and spend money internationally at the mid-market exchange rate. No guesswork and no hidden fees. Learn more about how Wise could work for you at wise.com. Today on State of the World, Israel vowed to invade Gaza. Why hasn't it happened? Thanks for listening to State of the World from NPR. We bring you the day's most vital international stories, up close, where they're happening. It's Wednesday, October 25th. I'm Greg Dixon. It has been weeks since Israel promised to invade Gaza to eradicate Hamas following attacks launched by that group that killed over 1,400 Israelis. There have been Israeli raids into Gaza to look for hostages or kill militants, and Israeli airstrikes on Gaza have killed more than 6,500, according to health officials there. But as of this recording, the promised ground invasion of Gaza has not begun. It seems that the U.S. has questions about such an action and maybe wants to slow it down. To understand what might be happening behind the scenes, Mary Louise Kelly spoke to NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman and Jerusalem correspondent Daniel Estrin. Okay, so Tom, you kick us off. Again, we don't know when, we don't know exactly what is coming, but all indications point to Israeli forces about to roll into Gaza. When U.S. military officials look at that, what do they see? Well, a lot of concerns. There's a concern that this could spread throughout the region should Israel invade uh, with the Iranian-backed mil- militants in Lebanon, Hezbollah may f- may fire its vast amount of missiles into Israel. This concern that Israel may not have thought through the implications of a massive ground invasion of Gaza. So you have top officials asking, what are your goals? Uh, what about civilians and keeping them safe in Gaza? And also telling the Israelis that this will be tough and brutal. Worse Mary Louise, in the fight to defeat the Islamic State in the Iraqi city of Mosul, you remember, back in 2016. And Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said as much on ABC Sunday. Let's listen. This may be a bit more difficult because of the underground network of tunnels that Hamas has constructed over time and the fact that they've had a long time to prepare for a fight. So I think you'll see a fight that's characterized by a lot of IEDs, a lot of booby traps, and just uh, really grinding activity going forward. And, of course, a bigger concern is Iran itself getting involved somehow. That's why you see the American aircraft carriers, the attack aircraft, more munitions, and American advisors heading to the region. And, by the way, Mary Louise, I'm told this is all part of a longstanding U.S. plan to defend Israel. It's been on the shelf for some time. It's not just kind of a haphazard movement of armaments and troops. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking of President Biden's visit to Israel last week where he said, we understand, we understand Israel's rage, Children were among the more than 1,400 people killed, but he also said Israel should not be consumed by that rage. Learn from the mistakes the U.S. made after 9-11. What exactly is Biden warning about here? Well, the biggest mistakes for the U.S. to telling Israel is the U.S. invaded two countries, Afghanistan and Iraq, overthrowing their governments and thinking things will be better, all fueled by fear about more terrorist attacks or suspected weapons of mass destruction. And in both cases, you had guerrilla warfare that lasted for two decades and continuing, of course, to today. 
Some of that could be true here. You, okay, you destroy Hamas. Who governs in Gaza? And are you creating more militants by your tactics? Daniel, jump in here from Tel Aviv. You just heard uh, Tom Bowman say U.S. officials are questioning what are, what, are, what are Israel's goals here? What are they? Yeah, I mean, Israel has uh, been a lot more clear just in the last couple of days about what its stated goals are. And the, and the goals are to eradicate Hamas's military capability and its ability to govern the Gaza Strip. So essentially, Israel is calling for a regime change in Gaza. Um, Israel and its leaders keep saying the next phase of the war is coming. Uh, what is that phase is the question. Uh, now, Israel has created this condition, Mary Louise, where basically they've said... Um, Israel needs to remove Hamas at all costs. And this is a very dramatic goal. And now Israel's trying to figure out how to make that work. There are tens of thousands of Hamas militants in Gaza. What happens with them? I mean, there are a lot of questions. Tom posed some of them. Another one is, is the Palestinian Authority, the internationally recognized uh, leadership of the Palestinians, are they able to take over Gaza if Hamas is, is uh, toppled. They, the, the Palestinian Authority barely functions today. They don't want to be seen as coming in on the backs of Israeli tanks. And of course, Israel says it doesn't want to reoccupy Gaza long term. They don't want to be responsible for the lives of two million Palestinians there. And, and meanwhile, on the hostages, how are people there in Israel thinking about uh, the hostages that Hamas is holding as Israel is bombarding Gaza? And, and it sounds like planning a ground attack. Oh, they're thinking about it a lot. I mean, Hamas has released four hostages just in the last few days, and this really does change Israel's calculus. It does delay a ground invasion. Israel dropped leaflets in Gaza using warplanes, basically calling on Gazans to to call this number if you know of a hostage. So this really does, um, really focuses the, the next days of the war. And it's also important to note there are 10 missing Americans. Some of them been, have been kidnapped by Hamas. And beyond that, you have some 400 to 600 Americans trapped in Gaza. They can't get out, and there isn't enough food and water going in. And also, I should just say that Egypt actually is concerned about letting people out of Gaza. They don't want to see millions of Palestinians coming into their country. Uh, Tom, quickly, just practical military considerations for the U.S. if this thing does end up getting bigger? Well, of course, uh, protecting U.S. troops against Iranian-backed militias is key. And we've already seen some attacks repelled against U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria. So that's why the added missile defense systems are being sent to the region. Uh, Again, Hezbollah getting involved would be even more troubling, really, for Israel. Hezbollah, get this, has some 150,000 rockets and missiles that could overwhelm Israeli defenses. Uh, Daniel, last word to you. Do you get a sense that Israel is listening to the Biden administration's advice? I do. Israel is listening to the U.S., but, you know, Israel's prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is known to take his time on on big military decisions. And Israel has been saying this is its final war with Gaza because Hamas will be gone after this war. But, you know, the question is, how? How do you get rid of Hamas? Reporting there from NPR's Daniel Estrin and Tom Bowman. There's only one place aid is being allowed into Gaza for over 2 million residents there. And that aid, coming in from Egypt, has slowed to a trickle. Juana Summers spoke to someone working to get more aid in. Mahasin Sarhan spent much of the last few weeks at the Rafah crossing south of Gaza. Every half an hour, you will have three or four rockets lighting the sky uh, less than one kilometer from where we are. Sarhan is the CEO of the Egyptian Food Bank, one of the largest nonprofits in Egypt. 
For days now, we've been hearing about truckloads of aid being allowed into Gaza through Rafah. Both Israel and Egypt have controlled what has gotten into Gaza for years. In times of peace, Rafah is a main entry point for supplies. Before this conflict, uh, a minimum of 50 to 68 trucks used to go through that border each and every day. And there was a continuous flow for people, medicine, food, whatever, in and out uh, of the border, just like any crossing between two countries. But since the October 7th Hamas attack against Israel, which killed more than 1,000 people, Israel has set siege on Gaza, keeping shipments of water, fuel, food, and medical supplies from entering. This has created a desperate situation inside Gaza, as millions of civilians struggle for basic necessities and hospitals run out of supplies. And at the Rafah crossing, the scene has been dramatic. We had more than 200 trucks parked right at the crossing, in addition to maybe 15 cargo planes. But Israel would not allow the aid in. Truck drivers were sleeping in their trucks. Activists were protesting. And bombs kept falling. And this area that Israel was bombarding, it's wasteland. We don't have any interpretation for that, except they were trying to intimidate and frighten the aid workers that were stationed at the border, that if they cross, they will be bombed as well. Eventually, 20 trucks were allowed through on Saturday. A few dozen more have been allowed in since. But still, much of the aid is waiting at the crossing. Sarhan, who returned to Cairo two days ago, checks in regularly with his team in Rafah. Now, in the evening on the 25th of October, Israel is still bombing the area around the crossing more intensely uh, than before. Uh, They haven't stopped. They only stopped for a few hours to clear some trucks, and then they start bombing again. When I talked to him, I started by asking him about what he's hearing from people inside Gaza who are waiting for aid that's so close yet so far. Maybe twice a day I'm calling many authorities in Gaza, and the situation is as of yesterday, that's after aid got in. After aid got in, now we have the health sector is operating at less than 5% of its capacity. Mm. You have people on uh, ventilators, you have people in ICU units, you have children incubators, and you have a fuel that is about to run out. Now, as we are speaking now, they have a few hours left. And Israel is very adamant about not allowing any fuel. If the fuel runs out, all these machines will stop, and this is instant death. As I'm listening to you describe the conditions there and the dire need for aid, I have to imagine that if you are a person who is seeking that aid, it is very difficult to know that it is so close that some of that aid that is waiting to get in can't do so. Are you hearing that concern from people? Yeah, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare for us as aid workers. For example, I'll speak from the experience of the Egyptian Food Bank. Once we got clearance from the Egyptian authorities that we can go to Rafah, In exactly 30 hours, that's less than two days, we were able to dispatch 41 trucks of aid. And we were not the only ones. So we reached an an, an approximately 4,000 tons of aid that could have brought a very valuable and critical lifeline to those people that are dying and starving. I'll tell you something. Five or six days ago, the hospitals there started doing surgeries without anesthetics. Could you believe that this is happening in the modern world? Because they didn't have enough access to anesthetics. They had to do surgeries without them. It's crazy. This is medieval. This is medieval. Yeah, you couldn't even start to imagine that this could happen in the modern world. Let me jump in here for a second, because as I'm listening to you describe the dire need there on the ground, the aid that still cannot, there's some aid is getting in, of course, but the aid that can still not get in. Can you just help us understand 
how severe this need is and how far the aid that is reaching these people can go to actually getting them the food, the medical supplies that they need to continue to endure. So since Sunday now, we've been getting an an average of 20 trucks a day. The UN estimates is at least 100 trucks a day have to pass through, at least, not including the fuel trucks. So as as of now, we've managed to get a maximum of 20 trucks a day and zero fuel trucks. So I'm hearing you say there that what's getting in right now, that is just a drop in the bucket to what is needed. Am I hearing it's that right? It's a drop in an ocean. It's not a drop in a bucket. It's a tiny drop in an ocean of death. It's sad. It's sad. Are you concerned that if a ground invasion begins, there will no longer be any aid at all that is allowed in through Rafa Crossing because it could be too dangerous to do so? I don't believe that would be a concern. Aid will still go through. I believe Israel is mostly concerned uh, with the northern part. So probably we'll continue moving aid into the south and using aid as a bait to lure people from the north to the south. And I think that's very evil. And it defies the, the entire concept of aid, that aid should serve the people that needs it. So we're just sitting and watching and we know exactly what's happening. That's Mahasan Sarhan. He is the CEO of the Egyptian Food Bank. Thank you. Thank you. That's the State of the World from NPR. Thanks for listening. And special thanks to our State of the World Plus listeners for supporting our journalists around the world. If you like what you hear and you're able to join them in making our reporting possible, please sign up at plus.npr.org or on our show page in Apple Podcasts. See you again soon. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. On this week's episode of Wildcard, comedian Bowen Yang says you don't have to feel bad for falling short on mindfulness. I get in my own way by, like, over-privileging the present so interesting because everyone wants to be in the present. I feel like being present is overrated. I'm Rachel Martin. Join us for NPR's Wild Card Podcast, the game where cards control the conversation. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity. It tells you there is more to uncover. How, how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism, immersive and intimate stories. I was Stone Cold Speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.